Good evening, and welcome to the Pratt Library. We are very pleased to present this evening's Writers Live program in partnership with the Johns Hopkins University Press. Many thanks to Jack Holmes and the other members of the press for choosing to bring their wonderful books and authors to the Pratt. And we also, of course, thank our many generous donors for making programs like these free and open to the public. Now, our special guest this evening is no stranger to Baltimoreans. And Morty Marcus had first dibs on the intro. I have this in my notes now. <laughs> However, as my prerogative as CEO, I asked to introduce Michael Olesker who has been writing about Baltimore for almost four decades, and his legions of fans have followed his writing in the News American, the Baltimore Sun, and the Baltimore Examiner. He's the author of five previous books, including Michael Olesker's Baltimore, If You Live Here, Your Home, and just a plug for that as a new person to the city that was very, you know, your books have really helped. Journeys to the Heart of Baltimore, The Cults, Baltimore, all published by Johns Hopkins Press, and his new book, Front Stoops in the 50s, tells the story of some of Baltimore's most famous personalities of that time. One of our current Baltimore personalities, John Waters, had this to say about Front Stoops. Michael Lesser digs deep and his scathing, alarming, and sometimes hilarious reporting of our past asks the question, have we come a long way in 50 years or are are race and class issues still scarily the same in Baltimore? For those of you who love local history and Baltimore stories, this is the book you'll want to add to your book self. So please join me in welcoming our favorite Baltimorean, Michael Olesen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can, can everybody hear me okay? Uh, I want to say first that Carla only said that Morty Marcus was going to introduce me as a way of giving Morty a stroke. <clears throat> when I was a freshman at the University of Maryland, I had to take a required uh, speech course, intro to speech. Um, my instructor was a young man named Richard Scher. Where's Richard? We... We had, I think, seven speeches we had to give, and the last speech counted double. I got one sentence into it and forgot everything. <laughs> I'm hoping to do better tonight, <clears throat> just to impress Richard. I want to thank all of you for, for being here tonight. I want to thank Carla Hayden and her staff um, at one of my favorite buildings, places in all of Baltimore, the Pratt Library. I have a special affection for the Pratt, since I did so many term papers down here, dating back to my days at Garrison Junior High School and City College. And more recently, I love this library because I have um, done a lot of research for several of my books here, and I spent virtually a year here coming down literally three, four, five times a week going through day by day by day microfilm of the Baltimore newspapers from January 1st, 1950 through December 31st, 1963. That microphone, microfilm will kill your eyes, I want to tell you that. I want to thank especially the ladies in this library's periodical department. 
uh, who were so patient with me and so pleasant and so professional. Also, I want to thank my friends at Hopkins Press, Bob Brueger, Greg Nickel, Linda Forleifer. They are wonderful editors, and it's a pleasure to be working again with Kathy Alexander and Jack Holmes, and thanks to my ultimate editor, my wife, Susie. The book is called Front Steps in the 50s, Baltimore Legends Come of Age. It asks, where were you 50 years ago, November 22, 1963? And I know that um, everybody can sit there now and say, I know exactly where I was when I heard the news. Um, that, to me, was the day the 1950s ended, and the real 1960s of tumult and chaos really commenced, and I think everybody in America of a certain age remembers where they were when they heard the news about John Kennedy and Dallas. The memory has never gone away, and the implications of that day reverberate even now. Where were we on that day? Uh, if your name is Frank Luber, you were a 25-year-old radio newsman covering a fire at St. Jerome's Church in Pigtown, southwest Baltimore, Luber worked for a radio station called WCAO, which was the radio station in town that every teenager listened to. If you were listening to WCAO that day, you heard Dion singing uh, Donna the Prima Donna. You heard Elvis Presley embarrassing himself with Bossa Nova Baby. <laughs> and ironically, you heard the Chiffons singing One Fine Day. And then the world seemed to change. Luber was summoned back to the station. He spends the rest of the day, like broadcasters all over America, bringing this unbelievable story to thousands of people. We're listening minute by minute to updates on a murder. We're hearing it on radios in offices and kitchens and on downtown streets where one guy's got a transistor radio and everybody else on the block is gathering around to hear what is going on. And this, is, this kind of scene is going on all over America on that awful day. And it's Luber who remembers still reading those wire service bulletins over the air, and he couldn't believe the words even as they're coming out of his mouth. None of us could. Fifty years ago, if your name is Verda Welcome, you are the only African-American member of the Maryland Senate. That day, she is one of 250 people gathered at the Lord Baltimore Hotel to hear a speech entitled Equal Opportunity. It's about black people finally getting a fair shot at jobs and housing, and so much of that hope tied up in this man, John Kennedy, when someone takes the microphone and says, someone has handed me a bulletin, the president has been shot in Dallas. That's all he knows. People at the Lord Baltimore stand and they bow their heads. They're saying prayers out loud. One woman faints and Verda Welcome breaks down sobbing because it feels like the undoing of so much hope that was invested. If your name is Judge Dorsey Watkins, this day starts out feeling like one of your good days. You're sitting in the old federal courthouse on Calvert Street where 102 immigrants from a dozen different countries have gathered for the swearing-in ceremony to make them American citizens on this day. 
Some of them carry small American flags in the room like children at a parade. Nobody's heard these early reports from Dallas yet. Then a U.S. marshal who's been listening to a radio in a clerk's office approaches the bench and whispers in Judge Watkins' ear, and Watkins slumps forward in his, on the bench and tells this crowded courtroom, I can't go on, President Kennedy has just died. And all these stunned, brand-new American citizens holding up their little flags, here is their national welcome. We all know where we were when we heard the news. I was a freshman at Maryland, had to take a required freshman lecture in phys ed on personal hygiene. (laughs) It gets worse. (laughs) I walk into Coalfield House, I walk into the classroom, and classmates are talking about the early reports coming out of Dallas. There's been a shooting, but nobody knows how bad. And the instructor walks in, this phys ed instructor with a crew cut, His name was Fluke, never forget that name. And he says to us, almost with a sneer, everybody just sit there. I've got a lecture to deliver, and when I'm finished, then you can find out whether or not the president's dead. And we sat there like sheep, because it was our last moment of innocence. We had been raised in the 1950s, to respect authority figures. And now the 60s arrives, and boy, are we going to make up for lost time. The 60s would become the country's long national nervous breakdown. Assassinations and riots and enormous social convulsions and 50,000 American kids getting killed in a war that's never officially declared, in a place that nobody can find on a map, and others marching on Washington or marching on college campuses and tear gas filling the air, and so much of it coming to us for the first time in our lives on television. In the 60s, we became a country choosing upsides against ourselves. Who says you can't fight City Hall? You sure can if you stage your fight with enough imagination. Somebody kills a president, it takes the limits off of things. If a creep like Oswald could change the world, then anything was possible, and anything could be staged for those television cameras. And it all begins to change with Dallas. So there we were 50 years ago. on the day that I believe the 1950s ended. My thinking was, decades never really begin or end on time. Um, They're a product of war and peace, money and politics, and whatever mood is in the air. In that spirit, the 1920s probably started with the end of World War I in 1918. set off a decade of Wall Street boom. They lasted until 1929 and the stock market crash. The 30s was the Depression, which lasted until Pearl Harbor in December of 41. The real 1940s was World War II. The 50s arrived somewhere after that, and many of us remember them with affection and longing. We want our innocence back. 
as though innocence is something we uh, inadvertently misplaced along with our car keys. The 50s were innocent compared with so much that came later, but it sometimes seems like a kind of willful, willful and enforced innocence. White people made themselves innocent of the appalling limits that were placed on black people. Men imposed restrictions on women to maintain a perception of female innocence and servility. Human sexuality in the 50s was censored and confined, and there were lots of people who saw this and saw that a lot of this was wrong. And when the 60s arrived, the whole world seemed to change in ways that were good and bad in what seemed almost like overnight. But the question lingers, when was it that the 50s started? Was it when the boys started coming home from from the war? Was it when Eisenhower took his first oath of office in January of 53? Was it when Elvis first started gyrating his hips on Ed Sullivan? My theory is that it started virtually unnoticed in a whole bunch of places, in little ways, and a lot of the really important people for America came out of Baltimore. The great civil rights leaders like Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Mitchell Jr., Madeleine Murray, who was dubbed the most hated woman in America for removing prayer from public schools, Barry Levinson, who gave the country what Vanity Fair called the most influential movie of the last 30 years, which was some of you may have heard about, called Diner, and on and on, including, of course, a girl named Nancy D'Alessandro. She grows up in the 1950s with her father as mayor of Baltimore. All she does is become Nancy Pelosi, the first woman in history as Speaker of the House of Representatives. But remember the era in which she grew up. In the innocent 50s, the choices for half the population are criminally narrow. Only nobody seems to notice this. Generations of parents unthinkingly shortchange their own daughters, their own daughters. They raise them to be submissive, and they raise them mainly to be housewives. In 1953, the son carries a wire story, story runs all over the country, headlined, Marry them dumb, boys, they're less inhibited. The story quotes a marriage expert who says, Girls who read too many books make the worst wives. <laughs> Intellectual wives are too repressed. The girls with horn-rimmed glasses and a college master's degree, outlook for marriage is poor. I hate to hear this since my wife has two master's degrees. <laughs> the story runs on page one. And if the right guy never comes along, maybe a brilliant girl in America dreams of becoming a nurse or a school teacher or some man's private secretary. Men become doctors. Women become nurses. Men become lawyers. Women become secretaries. Of those American women who worked outside the home in the 1950s, 75% had female-only jobs. Maybe they worked in the typing pool at Social Security, or they worked the cash register at Reed's. Only 3% of all women in the 1950s were doctors. Only 4% were 
were lawyers. Virtually every member of Congress was male. It's 1961 before Baltimore gets its first female judge. It's 1963 before Baltimore County gets its first assistant state's attorney who's female. 1963. Nobody imagined some little girl growing up to be the third most powerful person in America. It wasn't even vaguely on anybody's radar. But something's going on in the D'Alessandro household. It's not just her father, Mayor Tommy D'Alessandro. It's the mother. It's the mother, Big Nancy. She's the one who runs an army of women from all over town. They work the phones and they send out letters. They put together rallies. They're like the CIA. They report back to Tommy D'Alessandro, this one you can't trust. This one you can trust. They work out of the D'Alessandro basement. During campaign seasons, these are women who cook spaghetti and ravioli for fundraising events. Remember, this is a time before politics was played mainly on television with commercials all the time. When the campaigns back in the 50s routinely went into neighborhoods where there were parades, where there were bull roasts, and then everybody would go back to the D'Alessandro home and figure out what to do the next day and the day after that. And little Nancy is watching all of this. Across the 50s, when her father is serving three terms as mayor, Nancy is going all through school at the Institute of Notre Dame over on Asquith Street. Other little girls of that era are playing with dolls in their rooms. Nancy D'Alessandro's writing down the names of voters on yellow pads of paper. Other little girls are reading Modern Screen Magazine for the details of Tab Hunter's love life. <laughs> little Nancy is sitting at a desk in the D'Alessandro home beneath portraits of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and learns how to put voters in touch with the welfare department of the city of Baltimore or how to get a municipal job or how to get their neighborhood schoolyard cleaned up. People who would later sneeringly call her a San Francisco liberal don't know what they're talking about. This is the daughter of a machine politician off the streets of southeast Baltimore. And a big part of the machine was the mother. But when I went to her office in Washington to interview Nancy Pelosi for the book, she said even her mother had mixed emotions about how her daughter should spend her life she told me my mother wanted me to become a nun. I said, do you remember that conversation? She said, she said, do I remember it? I said, yeah, the conversation where your mother told you that she wanted you to become a nun. And Nancy Pelosi said, sure, I remember that conversation. It lasted 15 years. <laughs> and she said, maybe a priest, the power would be there. So the book's about people from Baltimore who were starting to change the world from what they saw, what they witnessed, and what they were doing half a century ago in ways big and little, such as a kid named Jerry Lieber. Remarkable story. Here's a guy who lived down in West Baltimore at Riggs and McKean. It's about half a block from Fulton Avenue, which happened to be the racial dividing line in West Baltimore in the 1950s. Whites on the west side of it 
and blacks on the east side of it, stretching back all the way to Druid Hill Avenue, the area that produced Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Mitchell. Jerry Lieber's mother was a widow. She runs a little grocery store, and she sends Jerry out to make deliveries, home deliveries, groceries, um, bags of coal. A lot of these deliveries he makes to the other side of Fulton Avenue, to black families. And this is where he starts to hear things that he's never heard before. He hears kids standing on street corners who seem to be ad-libbing their way through songs. Bop, shoo, bop, shaboom, shaboom. Where the, what the hell kind of music is this? Never heard anything like this. It comes out of radios and little record players and these kids standing on street corners. It's the very beginnings, the very beginnings of a style that will one day become known as doo-wop. Most whites in this era barely notice the music. They're still listening to the number one hit in America of that era, Buttons and Bows, or the number two hit in America, I'm Looking Over a Four-Leaf Clover. <laughs> but this music that Jerry Lieber hears comes from a different place. It's the music that begins with kids who slip out of their narrow little row houses and apartment buildings and housing projects, who don't have money to buy instruments, but they harmonize on these street corners and in the hallways and in school lavatories so that they can exploit the great echo chamber effect of porcelain toilets and sinks. And this music sends an absolute electric charge through Jerry Lieber, and he befriends these kids that he hears singing these songs. And when I interviewed him just a few months before he died, he said his whole life started on the streets of West Baltimore hearing this music. Because a few years later, he moves to California. He's a teenager. And he meets a kid named Mike Stoller. And they start to write songs that will literally shake up America. They write a song that is recorded by a blues singer named Big Mama Thornton. It's a modest hit on the rhythm and blues charts and then fades away. Now, Mike Stoller, Lieber's partner, gets married, goes on his honeymoon. He's on the Andrea Doria. Remember the ship that collides with the Swedish liner Stockholm somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean? Lieber is waiting to see if his partner has survived. He's down at the docks when Stoller comes back. He's on the dock, and Lieber says to him, we've got the number one hit in America. Stoller looks at him and says, Big Mama Thornton? Lieber says, no, some white kid. The white kid's name was Elvis Presley. The song was called Hound Dog. They go on to write all the early stuff for the coasters. They produce all the stuff for the drifters. They write a song. They write Jailhouse Rock for Elvis. They write Loving You for Elvis. They write Love Potion Number 9 for the Clovers. They write for the coasters. You know, they're writing all this, this humor and hunger from the urban ghetto. 
They're introducing it into mainstream America, which hadn't happened before. They write a song called Charlie Brown. Remember Charlie Brown? He walks in the classroom cool and slow. Who calls the English teacher? Daddy-o. Who wouldn't think this is a cool kid? It's black singers who are singing this song, and black kids and white kids who are listening about this cool kid, Charlie Brown. Nobody makes speeches about it, but he's cool. It's common ground for white kids and black kids who are, for the first time in their lives, attending school together. First time. They write a song called Yakety Yak. The parents are hollering at their kids. Take out the papers and the trash, or you don't get no spending cash. And when you're finished doing that, bring in the dog and put out the cat. Don't talk back. Nobody makes speeches about it, but the white kids and the black kids realize something. They've both got annoying parents. Common ground. Common ground because we had never had this before. It seems so simple now, 50 years later. And Lieber and Stoller produced songs for the drifters like Stand By Me and Spanish Harlem and This Magic Moment. And now you've got black kids and white kids realizing through this kind of music the way they never did that they've got hormones in common, that they've got romantic impulses in common. Lieber and Stoller wind up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Broadway, just a couple of years ago, stages a, uh, a Broadway show with nothing but their music, and it's a smash hit. When I interviewed Lieber about a year before he died, I said, did you ever think your songs would last half a century? And he said, I don't know. He said, when we sat down to write, we figured the stuff would last until maybe the following Tuesday. But it's not just the music that we're talking about. It's music that echoed across the American racial divide, that white kids and black kids were finally discovering together. And remember, again, these were kids who were for the first time sitting in classrooms together. And who put them, who put them together? Thurgood Marshall out of West Baltimore, while another guy out of West Baltimore, Clarence Mitchell Jr., was doing all kinds of stuff to integrate institutions, government institutions, housing that had never been integrated before. Mitchell, whose work with the NAACP helped desegregate every federal agency in Washington. And Mitchell, who convinced Congress to pass the first Civil Rights Act in 83 years, from which will come laws banning housing discrimination and ensuring the right to vote. And Marshall, also with the NAACP, who wins legal fights around the country, integrating colleges, and then wins the Supreme Court case integrating America's so-called public schools, which really weren't until then. They both came out of a Baltimore school that's now called Douglas High, Thurgood Marshall was kind of a class cut-up. Imagine a future Supreme Court justice. He was kind of a cut-up. The principal used to punish him by making him memorize a document called the United States Constitution. 
Talk about getting a head start on a legal career. (laughs) Clarence Mitchell had a different experience at Douglas. He met a girl named Juanita Jackson, who would become the first female African-American attorney in Maryland, and a dynamic civil rights force in her own right also became his wife. Back when they were in school, they were all regarded by law and by custom as municipal afterthoughts, as kids who were, who were regarded as inferior, simply by reason of skin color. And I'll tell you who some of their, some of their so-called inferior schoolmates were at Douglas High School. There was some kid named Cab Calloway. All he did was light up the jazz world for half a century. There was a young lady named Ann Wiggins who became Ann Wiggins Brown who helped change the American theater when she originated the title role in Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. She was the original Bess. And another classmate, Avon Long, who starred in that same production as Sport and Life. All of them, Mitchell and Marshall and Juanita Jackson and Cab Calloway and Ann Wiggins and Avon Long, all from one segregated high school in one city, in one tiny era, all regarded by unthinking white America of that era as inferior because of skin color. But now we come to a morning years later in 1954. Thurgood Marshall has now made his case to the United States Supreme Court. He has made his case on integration of the public schools. And he and this crowded, packed courtroom are listening as Earl Warren, the Chief Justice, begins to read the court's decision. The courtroom is packed with black and white people. They're sitting side by side, which is unusual enough in 1954. Some of them are reporters from black newspapers, including the Afro-American who grew up themselves in segregated schools. And as Justice Warren reads the court's decision, Thurgood Marshall looks around and it becomes clear that as the decision is being read, it becomes clear that the justices have voted to integrate. And Marshall looks at these reporters from black newspapers and they're scribbling notes with tears coming out of their eyes. The book is about that, and it's about how Baltimore reacted. It's about a young 12-year-old named Kiefer Mitchell trying to integrate Gwynn's Falls Park Junior High when school opened the following fall, and a howling mob of white people standing outside screaming obscenities and had signs reading, Go Back to Africa. And as they are screaming and threatening, one man stands up to the mob. It was Kiefer Mitchell's father, Clarence Mitchell Jr., who carried a sign of his own. It said, I'm an American too. I had a very fulfilling time with this book. It's about the Baltimore years of these folks. It's about Barry Levinson, discovering movies and comedy. It's about Madeline Murray taking on prayer in school. 
in school. And Kenny Wasteman producing a Broadway show about the 1950s called Grease. Of course, in Baltimore, we didn't call them greasers. You know what we call them here? You know, exactly. The book's about the drapes, too. It's about Vice Squad. Duke Zimmerman down here was a drape. It's about uh, the Vice Squad cops. It's about politicians. It's about street corner kids. And finally, it's about the day uh, that John Kennedy's life ended and what it was like in Baltimore. It was 50 years ago. It was the day the 1950s ended. It was the beginning of changes in America that reverberate to this very day. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. Hi, Michael. So let me say this. Let me say this. Now let me say this. No, let me say this. You talk first. All right. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. He was my freshman speech teacher at Maryland. He gave me a C. Okay. Just because, just because, he he validates it this way, just because I flunked the midterm in the final. No. What? Go ahead. Well, most of it had to do with the fact that your final speech you said three words and stopped. But what did I, I do? What, what did I do to help you he out? Was great. Please. No kidding. He and was take great. as long as you need. <laughs> he said, <clears throat> he said, Mike, sit down and you'll give your speech at the end of class. And I had a chance to compose myself. And instead of getting three words out, I got 12, I think. <laughs> I would like to he say that great. your content and delivery this evening were excellent. Thank you. Your delivery was very good. Is there any chance of raising my grade? I can do that. You can do that. I can do that. I can raise you now to a B. I will do that tomorrow. That's it? First of all, your verbal pauses, the ahs, uhs, ers, there, were, there was only one earlier in the speech. But your vocal inflection, your articulation, your gestures, I thought were excellent. The organization was done very well. I give you an A-plus tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Richard <clears throat> Richard really was uh, not only a terrific teacher, he is a great friend, and I will tell you what I tell everybody. Richard is at his best when you're at your worst. There's not a better friend. He's, he is there when you need him. Thank you. Any other questions? I still think I deserve better than a C, but... <clears throat> Michael, I probably... Is, uh, now, again, we're going to get bombarded here. Stan the Fan Charles, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. An anti-drape. An anti-drape. Yes. He got uh, beaten up by drapes. It's interesting. I had never thought about the way you described the end of the 60s, at the end of the 50s, being at Kennedy's death, because the other day I was watching the end of Diner, which the wedding at the end is New Year's Eve, 1959, turning into the 60s, and the movie ends with the bouquet being thrown, and it lands on the desk in front of, the table in front of Boogie. I was wondering if Barry would agree with you that the end of the the 50s was in 63. I I think so. Barry Barry and I talked um, for this book. There's a whole chapter devoted to Barry, and he talks about what it was like at Forest Park High School back then when he finished last in his class. And... um, (laughs) 
And, uh, you know, all his classmates at Forest Park, these, these young strivers who were on their way to Harvard and Yale, and he was on his way to Baltimore Junior College, also known as 13th grade. Um, <laughs> Clorinda Harris Lott is here tonight. I, Clorinda, did you have Barry Levinson as a student? Right, Mama Cash was a student there, yeah. Of course, you were 18 when you were teaching, uh, yeah. And Clorinda was also my wife Susie's English teacher and said she was just terrific. What the hell was your question? I forgot. Oh, what did the 60s? Whether you and Barry would see eye to eye on the end of innocence. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think so. You mentioned Boogie. Boogie Wineglass, who, who you remember, and he's in the book also in terms of you know, he's in Diner. When I was at City, Boogie was the guy to go to if you needed a blank report card. <laughs> where, where your own report card was so bad, was so bad that you didn't dare bring it home or your parents automatically put you up for adoption. Um, I did my best. Where's Jake Oliver? Jake used to, I used to copy off Jake all the time, but that's why I barely got through school and I needed a report card. From Boogie, years later, I said to Boogie, how did you get all those blank report cards? Guys would buy them from him for, a, I think it was a buck a piece. Jake, you would know the answer to that. <laughs> I, I, and he said to me, he said, I used to get sent down to Mr. Yost's office, the principal. He said, just like every day. He said, he got used to me sitting in his office. And so one day, he wanders out into the hall. I'm sitting there. His desk drawer is open. I look down. There's all these blank report cards. He said, it was a no-brainer. He said, I only made one mistake. I said, what was that? He said, I took all of them. <laughs> yeah, I think Barry would agree that, that, that that's the day uh, the 50s ended. Yes. Another another date question. I wonder if you how you would react to the suggestion that the 50s began with Jackie Robinson integrating the major yeah, leagues. Yeah, that's yeah. I think that the 50s began in lots of different ways, but that was certainly a, a powerhouse moment. Yeah, one of the joys of my life was as a reporter getting to meet Jackie Robinson. I, who who expected to see him? I thought he lived on Mount Olympus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Lee Gordon. Lee Gordon, talk about great journalists. I was the sports editor of the City College Collegian. Lee was my assistant sports editor. Go ahead. Uh, here's my question. Uh, talk about the 50s. Baltimore is romanticizing it here because of this boogie. Because of Boogie Wineglass and, and all these people. Um, and I just wondered, was, did the, didn't the 50s start with the anti-subversive laws in 47, continue with the Ober Law, which kept certain people from teaching in Baltimore schools because of the way the McCarthy era infested itself into Baltimore, along with the churches who made us say the Lord's Prayer every day, and continuing on with all the anti-intellectual things where you're making, I mean, I'm sure it was funny, but my re recollection of, let me, let me just say this, of the drapes in the, in the 50s was the drapes at Toots Bargers throwing the uh, bowling balls at the poor black people that were setting up the uh, pins and making fun and laughing at them. 
That's my recollection. And most of the people you talked about, except for the Mitchells who had business interests here, every one of them left Baltimore. And maybe one of the reasons they left Baltimore was this is the kind of town that had to import a southern cracker named, you know who? Buddy Dean? to be the one to put on the American Bandstand locally. All my friends from across the country said, you never saw American Bandstand? No, of course we didn't. We had Buddy Dean. We had segregation then, segregation now, segregation all the way through the 50s. So if you can say that the 50s should be romanticized in any way, shape, or form, I don't see it. I don't. I think the birth, uh, it's birth is painful, and I think the 60s got us where we needed to be. Thank you. I don't think that this book for a single moment romanticizes the 50s. And I think some of the dark stuff that you bring up now is absolutely throughout the book. I just thought it would be nice to remember some of the nice moments tonight as well. Um, but absolutely, um, those things did happen. And I, and I write about some of them in the book, including a full chapter on Madeline Murray. Um, and, and prayer in schools, and interviewed Leonard Kerpelman, who was her attorney, uh, who just died a couple of weeks ago, and talked at length about how she was an impossible human being, but she was absolutely right about the issue. No, it was still the 50s because it was before November of 63. Okay. Uh, Lee, Lee and I were on the Collegian together just to, to get it back on a happier track. Uh, the advisor to the Collegian was Charlie Cherubin. The Collegian came out every week of the school year. And um, it was the number one high school newspaper in America. But Charlie Cherubin, the advisor, was never happy enough with it. He would call us into his office and he would say, you all want to get into a good college? I have letters of recommendation in my desk that could get Hitler into the Hadassah. <laughs> Lee Gordon and I were on that collision together. Anybody else have a question? Listen, thank you all so much for coming out here tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you.